described as life-giving by the Sunday Times and as beautifully staged and touchingly performed by The Guardian, On Emotion is playing at Soho Theatre until the 20th of December. It is written by Mick Gordon and Paul Brox and stars Rianne Blythe, Caroline Katz, Mark Down and James Wilby as a therapist family fall victim to their emotions as puppet maker Anna enters their lives. Earlier, the artistic director of On Theatre, Mick Gordon, spoke to neuropsychologist Paul Brox. Well, I established On Theatre to make a piece of work each year on a given subject. I call these pieces theatre essays. And in a sense, that describes the process of making the work. Just like a written essay, you start with a theme and a question. And we try and then interrogate that theme in the most theatrically vibrant ways we, we can um, possibly imagine. I mean, my relationship with Paul began because I read his beautiful book, Into the Silent Land, and I was fascinated by his exploration as a neuroscientist, a neuropsychologist, into the notion of what is a self. And this led to the theatre essay on ego. Um, I mean, do you remember when I wrote to you, uh, could I come and meet you? And I don't think that you had written for the theatre prior to our meeting. I don't think I'd been to the theatre for about ten years prior to our meeting, actually, Nick. So um, certainly hadn't written for the theatre, no. And I was, I was interested to use some of the material that Paul had explored in one way, but I was also interested in the fact that um, you, you have, have quite an interesting view about the limits of science and the limits of art to explaining our existence. Well, I think that's what um, was one of the things that came out of the journey of the book, really. That, I mean, I approached it as a scientist and a clinician, but was very interested in this topic of the self because I've seen lots of, on, you know, on a, almost a daily basis, people who have the, the self challenged. So in neuropsychology, for many years, we've known a lot about how memory functions and how, to a certain extent, how emotions function, control of behaviour, but we don't know very much really still about how, this, how it all comes together to make a self. So that was the thing that came out of the journey of writing that book was a particular view of the self that seemed to challenge neuroscience. In other words, there are certain questions of the self, certain aspects to the self, which science didn't really get at. Um, and most particularly this, this kind of irreducible first-person perspective. You know, we, we all see ourselves make, from a particular first-person perspective, which science doesn't really get into. So that's the thing that interested me. It, where I got interested to sort of pursue it further into the arts, I suppose, was that it seemed to me that the self was really kind of a point of convergence. It's where the arts met the sciences. Mm. The arts deal irreducibly in the first person. Right, especially um, the theatre. Especially the theatre. So it was, a, it was an interesting intellectual um, exploration, let alone you know, developing... Um, works of art, works of theatre, works of literature, whatever. Because what we did in um, our first work together on ego was we looked at uh, the difference between 
ego theory and bundle theory. Could you um, explain the differences? Well, the ego theory is the sort of common sense, intuitive view. There was a question, you know, a, a, an age-old question in philosophy: of what makes us the same person from one day to the next? Hmm. Now, working as a clinician in, in neuropsychology, it struck me that people weren't necessarily the same person from one day to the next if they had, uh, you know, a, a neurological disease or um, a severe traumatic brain injury. But we still have this intuition that there is something that is essential. Um, a soul, if you like, that, and that's what persists from one day to the next. So that's the sort of classic Cartesian view of the soul, the sort of this essentialist view. There's something at the core. Now that doesn't really add up um, neuropsychologically, and, and in fact, um, there, there is nowhere in the in the brain where it all comes together. And it seems to me that what came together really was the story of the self. Um, so what makes a story? Well, we, we need long-term memory systems to store information, to build the story over time. We need language to uh, relate the story and, and, and turn the story over in different ways, look at it in different ways. And it comes out of that process. Now, those are processes that are not readily amenable to scientific investigation. And that, that, was, the really, that was the central point that really interested me. So bundle theory, um, which is a very old idea, goes back to the Buddha at least. Um, it was first um, described in modern times by probably David Hume, Scottish historian and philosopher. And the idea is that, that there is no centre, there is no core. There is just a bundle of interconnected thoughts and experiences, emotions, that are sort of lawfully interconnected. So if you see a mad dog, you feel afraid, um, and thoughts may be connected by association and, and, and memory and so on. But there is nothing at the centre. Um, it's just like a sort of bundle of, you know, sort of tumbleweed that blows across the desert. It's, it's coherent as far as it goes, but there's nothing at the centre. It's just a collection of tumbleweed. And I suppose in On Ego, what we were counterpointing was the neurological truth that we're divided and discontinuous with the subjective hunch that we are one person with fundamental desires and drives yeah um, and I don't want to suggest that we're not one person without these fundamental drives um, there is something about us which is irreducibly unified at least that's the sense we have and that may be all we have but it's, it's a crucial intuition to have, even, even if at the kind of um, neuropsychological, neuroscientific level of analysis, even it doesn't hold together, because we don't, we don't move in, that, in those realms. We move in the realm of the subjective and the social and the cultural, and that's a different language. What's interesting is where the one language stops and the other one begins, and whether there's any point of overlap. This is where, you know, the... I think there's a really interesting question here for, for philosophers of science, and I'm sure they've explored it in ways that I don't, I'm not aware of. But there is that kind of divide between the, the rich world of conscious experience that we have, this strong sense of a unified, continuous self, um, and the facts of the scientific matter, which don't really kind of fall into line with that. And that's just an interesting question. Um, it, worry, it's, it scares some people, I think. It scares some people that uh, there isn't a, or there may not be a kind of a central core. 
and certainly having having um, made that piece of work it raised many questions that you and I wanted to continue to explore using the theatre uh, and one of them was how do we make our decisions do we make our decisions in the way that we largely intuit or believe which is in a rational conscious way or do we make decisions based on sneaky emotional responses that we may not be consciously aware of and this led us to considering this idea in on emotion yeah we have um, there's a lot of interest now in what people call dual process theory there's no different different variations on that theme um, but emotion is a good example I think and particular kinds of emotion in, in the in the play we explore well, we explore various emotions, but in particular we look at fear, anger, and, and especially disgust. Now, they're, they're all examples of what people call basic emotions. They have a long evolutionary history. They evolved to solve particular behavioural problems, fight or flight, um, um, recoiling from contamination and so on. But they've each become elaborated as we've become socially and culturally elaborated. They've become applicable to other spheres of life, other experiences. And I think disgust is a very good example of that. Yeah. Uh, so we may think that we arrive at rational decisions about um, the choices we make in life, but often they're driven at a gut level, which is largely unconscious initially, um, but from which we articulate reasons sort of in retrospect. So there are certain things we all would agree are wrong. Uh, we shouldn't. It shouldn't be allowed. We shouldn't do it. Um, it's abominable. And yet, when you put the question to people, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong to sleep with your sister um, if you use contraception? You don't tell anybody, etc., etc., etc. Why is it wrong? It's actually you push people back further and further, and it's more difficult to justify in rational terms. We know it's wrong. We feel it's wrong. And that's what drives the decision. Um, so it's that division between those kind of basic intuitive gut reactions and the sort of culturally elaborated and articulated form of rational argument against particular behaviours, particular practices. And in your um, practice, when you used to be a therapist... Did you find that your uh, patients found it useful when those inarticulated, unarticulated experiences were made conscious so they were aware of the emotional processing that was driving certain of their behaviours? Well, I, I can't really answer that, Mick, because I didn't, it's a long time, so I didn't ever really do much therapy. I've always worked in a field that is been much more involved with um, assessments and diagnosis rather than treatments. Um, and I was brought up at a time, um, I was trained at a time when uh, there was a lot of interest in behaviour therapy and it was just at the time when there was also a huge amount of interest in cognitive therapy. Um, and it was a time when these things were coming together, so we now have cognitive behavioural therapy. So there's, it, and it's, it's some in some senses, people look at it as a very kind of superficial sort of therapy compared with, say, Freudian um, psychoanalysis. 
which looks for hidden drives, hidden motivations. Uh, it, CBT looks more at the surface and says, well, let's look at the thoughts, let's look at the symptoms as you have them, and let's deal with them now. Um, so it was never a question of sort of trying to expose particular underlying emotions. And in fact, in the, in the, in the piece, in the play, that's one of the things that we, that I was kind of consciously trying to capture in a sense was, well, maybe there's something, maybe there is, you know, there's a, there's a future evolution of this kind of therapy that ought to take account of those. And, you know, and I'm sure there are, as we speak, people working on this. Um, in fact, I, mean, I know there are people now working on sort of dual process theories of cognitive behaviour therapy, which take account of those emotional, unconscious, intuitive processes more than um, standard or classical CBT would. But it's, um, it's, we're not very far down that path, I think. So that was a question that I was really interested to. And in our therapist character, Stephen, that's partly his journey, that he's, he becomes aware through his own problems in controlling his thoughts um, and in controlling his, his emotions and his instincts, um, he becomes aware that maybe the, the, the problem is deeper than his form of CBT would allow. Um, and I think that's in, an interesting kind of journey because it's from, from the perspective of personal experience. Another aspect of, of the play that um, I know you're interested in is this notion of magical thinking. And in the play, we uh, use a puppet to illustrate um, several arguments that we're presenting. We ask the central question of on emotion, in on emotion, are we just the puppets of our emotions? And we see people being puppeted by their emotions in the play, and we see people operating a puppet. But a second strand to, um, to the work is, is a notion of what you would call magical thinking. Could you, could you explain that in its, in its various levels? Uh, well, that's a really big question. I mean, it would take half a day to do that, but um, there, are, there are different levels of magical thinking. There's magical thinking in the sense that um, the traditional sense of kind of superstitious or supernatural magical thinking, the idea that certain thoughts will produce, I mean, directly produce certain physical effects in, in the, the real world out there, as it were. So, for example? Um, if uh, it's, well, sort of a term that's used in work with people with obsessive-compulsive disorder, for example, is thought-action-fusion. The idea, if you think something bad, it might happen. Ah. It's a sense of temp almost like tempting fate. You know, so if you do something that's, or think something hard enough, uh, it, it, you might influence the, the course of events in, in, a, in a negative way. Um, so um, a not unusual feeling, for example, the thought is for a young mother to uh, imagine that she's going to damage her children. Right. Um, and it's the thought, you know, the, the very thought is, is, is disturbing because it, of that thought-action fusion that the, the thought can actually lead to the, some kind of violent act on the child. Um, so, I mean, we all have magical thinking in a sense. I mean, um, which of us has no superstitions whatsoever? I mean, I know that I carry certain little rituals with me I've probably had since childhood. I don't believe them. Um, and they don't occupy very much of my time. Uh, but they're habits that are very hard to break because I don't want to tempt fate, you know? And you, you, you've often um, 
use an example to me that that I find uh, really satisfying, which is you saying, I don't believe in ghosts, but I wouldn't pitch my tent in a graveyard. Well, exa- exactly. I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. We say we, we can reject these ideas at a purely rational level, but there's some other... And I've heard Richard Dawkins say the same thing. Mm. People ask him, would you, you know, would you want to spend the night in a, alone in a haunted house? And actually, he's very honest about it as well. Um, you know, rationally, yes, no problem, but you never know what sort of primitive emotions are going to bubble to the surface when you're in that situation. And I think that's, that's fine, because we... It's, it's something fundamentally human about being able to hold two ideas, contradictory ideas in mind at the same time, you know, what Keats called negative capability, where you, you can have these intuitions and yet um, you don't believe them. Now, I mean, a, a good example, a very, a very moving example, actually, was that I, I um, v- visited after many years an old friend of mine who'd lost his wife to cancer. And he said to me that the day after the funeral, he and his children sat around the kitchen table and a bird flew right onto the ledge of the open window and sang this beautiful song for a minute and then flew away and left the room in this, you know, this deep sense of tranquility. And he said, well, do you know, he said, um, I know it was her, it was a messenger that, and the message was, uh, it's okay, things are going to be all right, don't, don't worry. And he said, but at the same time, I know it wasn't her. So you know, he holds, holds, and still holds those, as far as I know, those two beliefs. As a, he's a scientist, he knows as a rational person, it wasn't her. He has no supernatural beliefs, yet he believes that it was. And that's, that's what I mean by holding these, it's almost like negative capability. You, you hold two quite contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time. And in the play... Um, we look at magical thinking in, in, in two ways. We, we look at it through uh, the problem that a character, a puppet maker called Anna, is having with her own thoughts. And we look at it through the idea of bringing a puppet to life. Could, could you talk a little bit about each I think of those? Puppets, well, those talk about puppets. I mean, puppets are very interesting, I think. I, um, in Into the Silent Land, I use quite casually the expression meat puppet to mean that you know that human beings are essentially meat puppets and uh, some people were very shocked by that um, and other people got the jolt that I intended them to get which was this sort of elevated sense of the mystery of consciousness because we tend to imagine that and this is, an, this is a, a very primordial act of magical thinking it's where we we imagine selves into existence so we have this kind of notion that inside the head, inside the brain, we kind of picture this sort of cascade of images and you know, buzzing thoughts. It's a place that's bright and alive. But actually inside the brain, it's completely dark and completely silent, as dark and silent as the inside of the wooden head of a puppet. So there's something strange that goes on when you... It, it, when you bring a puppet onto the stage, and I never really realised, didn't appreciate this till we started to work on this piece. The theatre itself is artificial, okay? So we know, as members of the audience, we know that they're actors acting, speaking other people's lines, moving in ways 
often very highly specified by specified by the director. So they're kind of um, puppeted. Um, and now, it, yeah, we accept the illusion. You know, we 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 kind of go along with it. If it's a, if it's a good piece, we go along with it. We're drawn into it. Suspension of disbelief. Now you'd think, or I would have thought, if you introduce a puppet into this, another level of unreality, you run the risk of shattering the illusion. But what I'm finding is you get the opposite. Mm. There's a kind of a, a, it's a heightened sense of illusion. And so that's a very mysterious kind of process because you project into the puppet just what you would project into the, the live actors. Thoughts, feelings, Thoughts, and actions. feelings, actions, yeah. Intentionality. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that's very interesting. And I think with, with our character, Mark... Um, who is, we've, well, we've described him as a young man who's at a slight angle to the universe, but he, you know, other people leap onto the idea that he's autistic. So let's go along with that, this high-level autistic person. The puppet is kind of, in the mind's eye, is sort of placed midway between the um, mechanical and the human. Right. The, the brain can't quite place it. When you see a puppet beautifully manoeuvred around the place the brain can't, it's, you know, it's one of these kind of dual ideas again um, so I think it's been interesting to have Mark because Mark is very good at, the, at facts and mechanisms but not very good, can't fathom people yet with an object like a puppet he's got something that's midway between the two and it's he kind of can use the puppet in a sense to channel expression in a way that he can't through his own biological body. Right, and we've given him the ability to operate the puppet well. Yes, yeah. The, um, the second strand of, of magical thinking is uh, less playful and uh, maybe the darker side of magical thinking that occurs for some people internally. And we, and we look at that through the character of, of Anna, would you say a little bit about that? Um, well, I don't want to give the game away too much, but <laughs> she, she is visited by intrusive thoughts, kind of ghosts from the past. Um, and that's one of the reasons that she sees Stephen, the therapist, is that she has problems controlling those thoughts. In parallel with that, it turns out that he has problems controlling his thoughts about her, but that's kind of <laughs> a different story. Um, so she has... Her thoughts return to this incident in her life um, some years um, previous. Uh, and she's constructed a whole pattern of magical thoughts around this particular event. Right. Um, and so it's almost like childhood superstitions that I've kind of just alluded to, that they kind of follow on and they inform what she does as a, as a mature adult. Is, is that what you mean? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, so... We, we, we're surrounded by ghosts, really. I mean, all of us are surrounded by ghosts. And we have ghosts in our head, and I don't mean, you know, sort of ghosts in the spooky stuff sense that none of us believes in, but all of us are probably slightly scared of, you know. So, so in the piece on emotion, counterpoint has played a major part for us, whether it be joyful, magical thinking of us experiencing someone bringing a puppet to life and us, the audience, projecting a life onto that puppet... 
uh, we see uh, the negative effect of a magical thinking that's occurred because uh, a terrible event in somebody's life has literally come back to haunt them and is now influencing their behaviour and psychological state negatively. We have uh, cognitive behavioural therapists who understands the mechanism of emotion and yet is unable to control his own thoughts and feelings. And uh, we have a, a, a young man at a slight angle to the universe who is unable to compute uh, emotions or to get the actions and feelings right, as he describes it, but is able somehow to be more independent and negotiate life uh, more fully, more easily than our other characters. So, coming back to the science and art question, the uh, pretense at um, objectivity and the pretense at subjectivity, do you enjoy working in the theatre because you, you can explore competing ideas in the same instant? That's probably a very good summary, actually, Mick. It probably is. Um, there's more freedom to do that. Um, you know, I... I I still do some scientific work and I, I value that enormously but there is a certain freedom to explore ideas in the theatre that you don't have in science um, and it's, it, I like the idea of kind of throwing together ideas that are actually one would hope not just plausible ideas scientifically but maybe have some sort of original some spark of originality to them um, which Maybe I don't anymore have the the dedication and the energy to pursue scientifically, um, but want to explore in other ways. Um, so I, I see these um, theatre essays as a way to do that. So we're not necessarily, in fact, certainly not finding answers to age-old questions, but maybe reformulating the questions in interesting ways. You know, so uh, I mean that's important. To me, that's the most important thing, that you, that you ask the right questions, that you ask interesting questions. Um, I'm, I'm long past the time when I thought I'd ever find any fundamental answers to anything, really. But it's, this, it's, the, it's the, the search for the good questions that interest me. And you can do that through the theatre, you can do that through creative, non-fiction, fiction, whatever. Um, and if... And you can do it in a way that honours that distinction between science and art. I think that you that it's important to make the science valid and plausible and interesting, but you know, it's incumbent upon us to make it an interesting piece of theatre as well. And and you know, for me that's a very that's the most interesting challenge, I think. And that was Mick Gordon and Paul Brocks talking about on emotion which is at Soho Theatre until the 20th of December. And you can book tickets now at sohotheatre.com or 020 7478 0100.